welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Ali. I've been looking forward to this episode because, well, this interview isn't just about what it was like to put together a dictionary of culinary terms from the Philippines. This thing is 370 pages, and I want to take a minute to explain exactly why this is a big deal. Inechi Polistico's Philippine Food, Cooking, and Dining Dictionary, you're going to find entries for over 35 kinds of pansit, with descriptions about their known origins, the ingredients in them, where it's from, its locality, how it's pronounced, and all of this stuff is cross-referenced with known alternate names for each of those varieties. And if you think about it, that's just for pancit. For adobo, there's an astonishing 87 entries. I think that's basically a challenge to like try them all, or at least as many as I can in my life. I mean, it's kind of like second nature as boiling a pot of rice, I guess? Like, for Filipino people, adobo is just a way of cooking. It's a method. And whether you're in a paddy field, there's entries for adobo with crickets, with mudfish, with snails, and like field mice. Whether you're in the woods, you can have adobo with duck or quail or frogs. And the one that I found about wild mushrooms that was pretty interesting. Um, you can make adobo out of stuff that you harvest from a vegetable garden, like string beans, water spinach, those are two pretty common ones that I remember. I ate quite a bit um, growing up. Um, you can make adobo with eggplants, with peanuts, banana hearts, and green mangoes. And even if you're out by the sea, or at least close to some kind of water source, you can have things like adobo pusit which is squid. You could have it with mussels, with prawns, with tuna, with other river fish. And I think to me it's just fascinating to understand just how deeply embedded that act of cooking something adobado in its uniquely Philippine way. That's an instinct that's shaped by our taste, our sort of collective palate. And there's this Tagalog word that I've recently kind of, I guess, come across a lot more because I've been watching a lot of this travel show called Biahe Nidru, and um, sometimes I'll say something about what's nakagisnan. And nakagisnan, or nakagisnan, uh, that means something that you've grown up with. And I just like it as a word to describe why people cook and why people make adobo the way that they do, because it's shaped by their experiences, and of course it's going to be different for everyone. And so every time I pick up this book, the Philippine Food Cooking and Dining Dictionary, every time I flip to a random page, I just 
I learn something about a topic that I really love and like enjoy learning about. And it adds to my appreciation of having this physical book in my hands because as we'll kind of find out today, this is really just scratching the surface of what a lot of us know about Philippine cuisine. And yeah, so on this episode, we're going to talk with Edgy Polistico about his journey to writing the dictionary um, published by Anvil Press in 2016. And I will say now that if you don't have a copy of this book yet, I do recommend securing (laughs) one either from an online shop. There's a couple that ship to the U.S. and Canada. Um, And, I mean, if you do have someone in the Philippines who can pick up a copy of it for you, I do know they stock it at places like National Bookstore and Power Books, so it is pretty easily available. Um, It's just a matter of actually getting it into into your home or wherever you are and just having it as a good reference guide. So settle in, let's get to it. really, really excited about this episode because I have had a copy of the Filipino Food Cooking and Dining Dictionary. I have um, a copy of it right here. I have little post-it notes wow. on lots of the pages. <laughs> wow. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome, Angie. I'm very excited to um, have you on the show because Every time I bring this book to um, a Filipino food gathering here in Toronto, um, a lot of people are always asking, like, where did you get that book? And I have to say, (laughs) it was when I went back to Philippines and then I bought it at, like, National Mm -hmm. Bookstore. Um, And then they always ask, like, you know, how it came about, where is it from? So... (laughs) Well... It did not uh, start uh, right away about food. It was a story of struggle. You know, I came from the small town in Western Leyte, which is a very poor town. At the time, there was no electricity yet in our town. So I managed to, to find a way to improve my language. So we had a hard way of expressing ourselves in English. So uh, we have to uh, ask uh, everybody, including neighbors, <laughs> uh, everybody we meet, just to find the right words. So just to give us an idea of time and place, Edgy grew up in the western part of the province of Leyte. That's about in the middle of the Philippine archipelago. It's part of the Visayas Islands in the middle there. Um, most people in Leyte speak some form of Waray or Cebuano, And when Edgy was in school in the early 80s, he was 14 when this next part starts happening. That was definitely the case. So I started collecting um, local words, vernaculars, then I tried to translate to English. It's in a hard way because we have no references. Have you seen the PowerPoint presentation there? I'm starting to cry now. (laughs) I remember those things. That PowerPoint presentation he talks about, on the second slide, it has some photos of Edgy's high school library. Um, That was something that drew me in. It looked to be this one-room structure with light 
poking through a few gaps in the walls and the joints of the ceilings, and the floor was made of wooden planks. There were a couple that were uneven in places. You can kind of see from the shadows. So you, you've seen our school. It was um, a wooden building, dilapidated, and you see the library is empty. There were some books that's already, um, I don't know if you if you if, if you could, if you can recognize that there were books. They were torn and um, broken, and um, basically we don't have references in our school, so. I just want to take a minute to let that sink in, because, to be honest, I feel like some kids in Leyte, even today, might also find it just as unfamiliar and foreign as you and I would, that with all of the world's information literally in the palm of our hands, if you have the means to own a phone and pay for data, we've come a long way from not having access to reference material. So I go to the people around, uh, you know, mga kasama, katilala, mga kamag-anak. Word by word, I ask. I ask them to translate it, and I take, I took note of that. I write and I compile. Then, um... I found the old Miriam dictionary, my Lulu Tolo. So I also tried to use it and hope, uh, luckily it helped me some. And I can't help but let my love of languages come through here. Because as Edgy explains, simply realizing and acknowledging that there was a barrier, that was something he remembered being in high school in later in the 80s. You know, I hated ourselves because uh, we had a hard time expressing ourselves in English. We know how to have the idea. We know how to make an idea. But it's the problem of expressing it in this English language. Because it's all the medium of instruction there is English. So when uh, I, I don't know if you if you are familiar with the theme writing. Uh, in our educational system here in the Philippines. Uh, say, for example, there's a vacation, a Christmas vacation. When you go back to school after the vacation, you'll be asked to write something about the vacation. Uh, that's funny because we're copying it out <laughs> because we are short of vocabulary. <laughs> so to make the story short, uh, it was just for my... I remember writing those what I did on my summer vacation essays as do most kids in my generation and probably up to my parents' time too. The point I want to make is that, excited as you might be, like I was, I guess, to find this point of familiarity, just asking, like, what you did on your summer vacation, as an essay topic, it's just definitively a product of the American schooling system and curriculum. And if you think about it even more, the fact that the American schooling system really started rolling out at the turn of the century in the 1900s. Up until the 1980s, teachers have been asking this to kids across the Philippines, with a large proportion of them probably not having a summer vacation, definitely not in the same sense that Western kids did and still do. If you're out in rural Leyte, for example, summers probably meant spending days out in the field, whether you were running around and playing, or maybe helping out with some farm work. And I wonder, I guess, that if we had asked them to write about what the last few months was like 
for them, period, in the language that they lived with and spoke. I wonder what kind of essays would come out of that, because I really believe that there is a place for literature of all kinds, whether it's notebooks you keep from the 70s and 80s or, I don't know, an Instagram account that someone creates today. There is a place for those stories, but we never realize these things until it's too late. Let's get back to Edgy's Dictionary, the Cebuano to English one that he's been working on through high school. When I took my NCEE, the College Instance Examination, it helped me to pass the exam. And after that, I was deciding to throw it away because I no longer need it, so I'm going to college. You know, I want to throw it away. I don't want to remember the hardship, the, you know, the, sad, the sad story in that because I worked the mountain to gather some vegetables to gather some fruits to buy the band paper where i used to write the notes um but it's sad no so i, I just want to forget the, the, the sad story but i want to celebrate my my you know, my accomplishment in school oh i passed the nc i'm going to college something like that then i realized um oh and that dictionary if you look up edgy's blog you'll find some photos he's posted of that dictionary it's made of bond or mimeograph paper, this kind of rough, off-white, like medium stock kind of paper. It's stapled in sections and parts of it are sewed together with a lot of edgy scrawls and drawings and sort of interspersed between neat lines of handwriting. Then I realized, it's another sad story if I will just depart from this, if other are also in, you know, would benefit from this. So something developed in me. Uh, what about if I will share this to others? When I go to Tacloban, I enroll in my college there. Uh, I spend all my time, my free time in the library. So I have nothing to do in school. I stay in the library until the library closes at nine. So every day I do that. It's my routine. Uh, when, when we have free time or have no class, I go to the library and stay there because, uh, you know, Manual sort of time is hard, so that's a way. So na focus ako doon sa compilation ko ng vocabulary because I really had expressing myself in English and, and it helped me. So this book, it all started from that. So I become an um, accidental lexicographer. I don't know what I was doing then. <laughs> then I just, in, in, in my search, I found out that I'm writing a dictionary. I didn't realize in, at the start that it was a dictionary that I was making. So it was an accidental, and um, what do you call that, fate? Or my destiny or like that, a vocation. Then I pursue in that and then it becomes a bigger and then more complicated. And I don't know what to do next because the, the paper is getting thicker and thicker and they are not arranged. And by paper getting thicker and thicker, he basically means those stapled bundles of bond and mimeograph paper that he's been collecting at home, with entries that he adds as he collected more and more words to add to his Cebuano English dictionary. If you look at the notes, actually I still keep it in my past. It's not arranged as a matter of what comes in. So what he needed was a way to organize things to make the information that he'd been collecting and recording carefully 
help not just him, but anyone who needed a hand with translating Cebuano or Bisayan words and phrases into English. And that's when the next chapter begins. So by now, Edri is in Tacloban City, the capital of Leyte. He's studying at a local college and lives with his uncle, and over on his blog, there's actually a photo of him at home from this time. The club in itself, it's got a lot of history. Personally, I associate it the most with General MacArthur's landing and that phrase remembered by so many Filipino people, for better or worse, that he would return. When Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines in 2013, I then came to know Tacloban, I guess, in a different way, because from where I was in Toronto at the time, I was just seeing so many people travel there to help in ways that they could. Today, I learned about where the city's name, Tacloban, comes from. Tacloban apparently comes from the word taklob, which is this fishing trap made of bamboo that a lot of fishing communities used to use and today some still use along the eastern Visayas coast. The story goes that before it was called Tacloban, the place was called Kankabato, which means belonging to the Kabato, which were the island's indigenous people. And because the city has this natural harbor that just opens up into the Gulf of Leyte, it's basically the best place to go fishing. And I just imagine what it might have been like to see dozens, even hundreds of these taklob traps all along the coast. So the story is that if you asked a fisherman where he was going back then, he would say Tarakloban, meaning to the Takloban, which over time became Takloban. I'll never know what this place was like in the 90s, but that's where Edgy was, with his dictionary that really started needing a bit more work. It was around this time that he first became acquainted with a software called WordStar. And so after college, I started uh, the, the encoding computer. It was a self-struggle again. So I started more on computer through self-learning, self-studies. And in my search for learning, I accidentally uh, opened the source code and I was able to read the code. Uh, I don't know how it happens. <laughs> Maybe by curiosity. Then I able to, to edit it. So I said, oh, it works. I wrote the code using that pattern. Then it works. So I used that system to uh, organize my research. Uh, you know, the things that I wrote in my notes is already uh, in this array. So it automatically uh, sort in alphabet alphabetically. Uh, it helped a lot. And that also inspired me to go more. So that's, that's also started my interest in uh, programming in computer. So I said, oh, you don't need to go to school. You can, you can do this. So, uh, I decided to enroll in computer school. So I, I, I took up a short course on um, programming and design where you can create an app, like a program. And that's what happened. 
through my first digital dictionary, I was able to write a positive. And that first digital Cebuano English dictionary that Edgy started by cracking into WordStar's source code a few years back, that came out in 1995. I was able to write and post it on the internet. I share it online. And also, I born it on a CD. And wherever I go to Philippines, I just it freely because, you know, in the province, they cannot afford to buy it. So I give them for free. Give it to the police. I give it to the teachers. So uh, I meet in the libraries, something like that. I can't get over how Edgy's work just seemed so ahead of its time. Like, the internet was in its early stages in the Philippines, and while upper-to-middle-upper-class families like mine could start to afford a desktop computer, the majority of people living outside of major urban centers like Manila or Cebu, they kind of really had little to no use for one. Edgy describes, for example, how a couple of times, after sharing a copy of his digital dictionary on these CDs that he burned himself. You know, the feeling when they look at you and gaze, why you gave me this? What will I do with this? Because at the time, computer is not a commodity. <laughs> just, uh, just keep it. I said, just keep it. Oh, wala pang silpon. So, I realized that uh, it was not yet the time, so I stopped distributing the CD. So uh, I shared it online. And as Edgy recalls, while he had the dictionary online, what largely took over this period was the sense that he kind of felt no one was really able to help promote and to support the project, his work. Um, we no help came because I was also asked for help. Nobody is telling me can help me. So it was a hopeless uh, thing to pursue, so I stopped it. By the mid-90s, he says, Edgy started to think about his work in a different way. I focused on the food. And part of what drew him to focus on food, and as we discuss in a bit more detail, how food relates to migration patterns, that kind of came about with the rising number of people in the Philippines who wanted and needed a particular kind of training the culinary courses, the HRM, are becoming popular. There are more who enrolled in these courses than nursing, commerce. And to an extent, I've lived that. The reason I went to hotel school in the first place was because, like a lot of people, just the allure, the idea of living abroad and working in the hospitality and tourism industry, stuff that I would see from magazines, from books, from the internet, it just seemed like something that made total sense. It was a natural, no questions asked decision. What else would I have been doing in Manila? What else would so many people in my generation have done with not a very promising economy in the country? So what that means is that by the 2000s, People are migrating abroad. Everybody are so eager to go out, to go to the other country. And the fastest way is to, it's more of hotel management and food serving and preparations. So, I'm interested because um, 
when I read their references, their textbooks, there was nothing about Philippine food culture. So I said, why not promote our food while it is now a popular courses in college? Just thinking about how many people took a similar path of stories that weave through generations about how some of this might feel familiar. Whether you left the Philippines in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or 2000s, it just astounds me because it feels real. And I know that I've come to look for these themes and patterns in other people's stories and their experiences because in the end, I recognize that it helps me feel a little less alone. And I think it helps to remember, or at least ask, why so many people choose to do this and continue to choose to do this? Because I guess to dial it back, way back, to a main need that needs to be met, people need to earn a living to put food on the table and support a family. And when I look, like actually look, at the number of people who don't see a future and the surroundings that they grow up in, if all the experiences you have collectively, personally, if they don't support you seeing a future and staying where you are, I begin to understand why risking what you do have is worth a shot at something better. Now that there are millions of Filipino people back in the Philippines, unexpectedly, with COVID-19 halting so many of the world's industries, there are so many people with years and years of work experience from some of the world's best hotels, best restaurants, and cruise lines. I just, I wonder about what it would take to keep that level of talent within the country, to revitalize areas that are already well on the way to becoming major tourist destinations. Like, I think about that a lot because with my work in Toronto and the travel and tourism industry, there, I mean, it's not the best place to be at right now in terms of making money, but it underlines the fact that people want to have those experiences to broaden their horizons, both physically mentally, emotionally, and traveling, like actually going someplace, that experience is something that people will pay for because it holds something of value to them. And I really just think that there's so much of that in the Philippines that we can tap into that one day I do hope to make the work that I do contribute to this somehow. To me, I see it like if you've discovered something and found it amazing, you'd want to share it with someone, right? And I kind of feel like that's the secret to traveling to the Philippines because the landscape and the seas and the food, that's one thing. But those experiences that you have when you interact with people, when you have a drink with someone or share a meal with your guides or visit someone's home because they just invite you in. Those are the kinds of experiences that help people see for themselves what I see, which is that 
Filipino people are some of the realest in the world, and I know that. And I guess I had to broaden my own perspectives to leave the country before I really saw that. Hopefully more people see that as a reason to go and, over time, to help build an economy that actually gives people a reason to stay. Because when tourist dollars go where they're supposed to, within a system that supports local economies and just allows people to share the experiences that they know and love, I think it's pretty limitless. But that's just me. Let's get back to the dictionary. There are so many things to learn about the Philippines and its culinary culture. It definitely doesn't end with this book, but it's a great place to start. So with his Sapano English Dictionary, Edgy realizes eventually that he needed to broaden that scope. So at the time, there were only all Cebuano terms or entries. And uh, because I travel a lot, because my job is involved traveling, so I gathered a lot. Then I also followed some um, food writers. So I followed their, their write-ups. Um, what happened then is that um, I was not satisfied. So I go to find other sources. So I go to libraries, I go to showrooms, you know. What else? Um, markets. Okay, I go to the markets. Uh, Talipapa, and then, lahat kaya book vendor. Pinapatulang ko kahit naglala ko pinapatulang ko. Bal, pagka nabili ako, parang nasa may insip ko na yon na uh, hindi lang ako basta bibili sa yon. Dapat yung ibibigay mo sa akin is not only the food but also the information of the food that you are selling to me. Parang ganon is the story. Uh, I, I'm not satisfied na I tested it. I I saw it. Even though na nabigyan niya sa akin lahat, parang nandun pa rin yung hunger. No? Parang hindi pa ako nabusog dun sa kinain ko at saka yung binigyan niya sa akin. I even go to their kitchen, go to the villages, join them, I dine with them, chatting with them. Basically, he says, as he started to focus on compiling specific food terms from all of the places he'd visit, from like the tip of Luzon to the most southern point of Mindanao. And she would ask people about the food they sold, from sidewalk vendors to people cooking in carinderias to the person that's hawking stuff from a basket at the bus station. But he didn't just want to buy what they were selling. He wanted to know what it was made from, where it was made, who made it, who bought it. The five W's, I'm pretty fond of that. Importantly, what those foods were called by local people. And even after all that, he says, the hunger was still there. Philippine culture is, is diverse, you know. Even in family among the same community, you cannot compare uh, that this should eat the same kind of food. Uh, like here in the Manila, this is a diverse, this is a melting pot. There are no actually pure Manilans here now, okay? Because this is uh, a mixture of different ethno-linguistic groups. Just like here in our community, we are 
surrounded with uh, our brothers, brethren in Mindanao. We have here Maguindanao, Taosug, Maranao, and then the other side, we have here uh, from Ilocos, and then our next neighbor is Adisaya, then the other one here, this old lady, is an Elongo. So this is a, a mixed culture. So when it comes to food, you cannot uh, appreciate everybody. And what Edri means here is that across different ethno-linguistic groups, our tastes and preferences, our dietary choices, and even staple crops, all of that stuff stems from the place that people identify and recognize as home. And since we all come from somewhere, from vastly different places with different geographies and ways of life, it's just natural to like one thing over another, to choose what's familiar. Say, for example, the Ilocano have a papapaitan, not everybody will be happy because they don't like the odor and the taste. And then when the Tagalog serve you sinigang, the Cebuano will not appreciate it because they don't like sour. And uh, so it's, it's a culture that you have to appreciate, you have to acquire. And um, in my part, as a food researcher and a food writer, I always show my respect, even if I don't like the food. <laughs> so uh, it's more of uh, showing your, know, your interests and to focus on the person, not, not myself. I have to understand why they have this, so that they're able to write about their food. I'm telling you this because we are regionalized. Our food culture is not nationwide. We have no national food culture. We are diverse based on the resources, uh, the practices of the regions. And with that, let's take a tour of the Philippines. From the highlands, coasts and plains of Luzon, to the islands of the Visayas, to the mountains and far-flung reaches of Mindanao. If you go to Central Luzon and Binguet, they will not enjoy this seafoods. They will not enjoy this uh, dried fish because they don't have it. What they have there are, you know, the abundance of farm produce. They have vegetables, they have the nicest vegetable grown, the freshest, the biggest, and also the product in the wilds. Although there are now already getting few, the wild pigs, native chickens, they're enjoying that. So it's more of what is available in the region. Uh, in Ilocos, because uh, they are temperate region, plants there could not grow any bigger. And um, most of the produce are bitter, that's why they, they love to eat bitter foods. You see the papaitan, uh, they like you know, the bitter melon, the ampalaya, like that. They, they like to eat bitter foods. When going down in southern part of Luzon, where there are now seafood industry, or there are no uh, the salt production like in uh, Pangasinan, you know, Pangasinan is maasin. So you can also uh, notice that uh, their food are salty or they're perceived more of salt. The provinces and the regions where there are so many fruits, like in Bulacan, Pampanga, and in Laguna, and something like that, there are so much uh, sour fruits. That's why they have also the very sour sinigang. And what else? In Palawan, uh, there are some seafoods too. And uh, because the tribal composition, the Tolinguist group is uh, most closely related to in Borneo, 
So the food culture is also more about the wilds, okay? But if you go in the Visayas, like in Negros, which is the seafood capital, so there are abundance of seafoods. You have the, the wide source of sugarcane, so you can notice that there are more uh, sweets, you know, sweets, uh, delicacies. And uh, in the eastern side of Visayas, late summer and going to Bicol, where the coconuts are abundant, you are fond of using the coconut milk. So most of the dishes that has gata are most commonly found in the side of the Philippines. They're on the eastern side facing the Pacific. And in Mindanao, like for example in Tawi-Tawi, um, you know, where they are not used to abundance of uh, produce in the, in the farms, uh, they have no abundant supply of sugar. Uh, the ingredients, the, the resources are very limited. That's why uh, I noticed, I observed when I get there that they have to be, uh, uh, what you call that? Nagtitipid sa mga panggamit sa pagluluto. That's why when, when, when they serve sweet delicacies, it's just a subtle sweetness. Even in salt, they are surrounded with sea, but they cannot produce so much salt. It's not so salty, but only the, you can just uh, savor the taste of the sea, uh, the natural flavor, uh, something like that. So very subtle and taste nila. So hindi sila intense. Kasi nga, uh, they have a limited resources of ingredients. I love learning about how people eat in Tawi-Tawi, one of the furthest southern group of islands within the Philippines territory. Geographically, to give you an idea, it's a boat ride away from Malaysia's Sandakan coast. So in Tawi-Tawi, as Edgy explains, people typically don't, I guess in a Western sense, season their food with a lot of sweetness or salt. He says instead you can taste the subtle sweetness or the inherent saltiness of things, typically seafood and fish. It's different from the punchy flavors, for example, of the palapa, which is a condiment traditionally made with uh, sakurab, which are white scallions, ginger, and native chilies that grow around Lake Lanao, where the Maranao people are from. And so, by extension, palapa is really a Maranao condiment. To understand that all of this is shaped by the abundance and the scarcity of food and the means to buy that food, it just makes such an impact on me because I realize that it's something that doesn't have to end with being in the Philippines. Uh, we were made to believe that when I was in elementary and high school that durian can only be found in Mindanao then I realized that it was wrong, that, that durian is not, it's not uh, endemic to Mindanao. It's, uh, it's all, all over in Southeast Asia. And there were some other varieties. There were some red, there were some orange, there's white, and there was, there's even a thornless durian, if you know. Uh, a durian without, with, with no thorns. It's a thornless durian. And yellow, and there's even durian without, with no, no odor. It's not nothing. But sweet, yeah. There's also with odor and tasteless, something like that. So it's not just a one durian. The food culture in the Philippines is 
different in every region because they rely on the resources. Uh, there is no equal distribution of supply here. The, the market, the, the way the market they produce always end up only in the public market. So what Edvi means by that is because of how accessible roads are to local farms or how buyers perceive the relative peace and order of a certain area, whether adequate storage facilities even exist to keep fruit and vegetables fresh, all of these things affect what you'll find in the local market. Whatever was cheap, was plentiful, and in season, people cooked a lot of because it was there. It was just lately that we have no um, mass production of poultry, mass production of uh, bangus, of seafoods, they are not cultured, uh, that you can now buy them in the groceries. Two or three decades ago, there was no such groceries that is um, distributing or selling this uh, produce. They always rely what is available in the market, in the local market. That's the reason why I go to the market in every town where I've been. That's my first destination. Then, uh, now this is part of, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of your question. This is part of the, the way I find my information, how I, I'm able to write the book. Let's take a look at what it actually took to create the Philippine Food Cooking and Dining Dictionary because there's so much that goes into a project of this scope, and as Edgy says several times, the work never stops. A big part of the book's a draw for me is that, and I've said this before, it answers the five W's. Who made this or ate this? Where they'd make it? Why they made it? Why did they eat it? When did they enjoy it? And how important was it to their lives? I love learning at least some of this when I flip open to a page in this book about some random food item from the Philippines. Out in the field, meaning in public markets and transportation hubs and people's homes, Edgy uses both quantitative and qualitative research methods to do his work. What this means is we're getting kind of like a glimpse into social sciences and the important work that research and documenting really is. Like, I 100% would want to do this. And it shows the specific impact of a certain food to everyday life for certain groups of people in the Philippines. So next we're going to talk about ethnography which falls under a qualitative type of research method, meaning it relies heavily on personal interaction, and not just the counting of sets and numbers, which is quantitative research. I want to take a minute to share what I learned from the slides from Edgy's lectures, because they're so interesting. Ethnography, he says, is a branch of anthropology that deals with a systematic recording of human culture and the customs of individual peoples. This covers things like the social relationships we have with each other, how we preserve traditions and rituals and our sense of heritage, about our taste preferences, about appreciating local art and craftsmanship and 
learning laws and different kinds of cultural norms and taboos. And just understanding how much of this affects the development of the culture around food, it's amazing. It's just one of the methods that I applied, ethnography, meaning you go to a place, a region or a town or a barangay or a city or a village where a particular ethnolinguistic group, meaning a community composed of the same people with uh, the same belief, the same culture and uh, language because of the word ethno. You know, in writing dictionary, you have to get the, the commonly used words for that particular thing. What's the term to use to name for that? And that will be your head word or the main entry. Then to get the definition, it's not like the vernacular or the, the language dictionary that you can easily define, say, for example. Let me put it this way. Um, when you translate, pala, like for example, the local word in a bilingual dictionary, for example, red, you can easily say hula. But when you say sinigang, we translated to English, you cannot just say it's a sour dish. So you have to qualify, you have to, you have to elaborate to describe more. So you will be describing, you'll be touching more about the tastes, the texture, and the ingredients. So it's more uh, descriptive. To attain that, to get that, the descriptive definition, this is because in food dictionary, it's more of descriptive definition. So you go through with the ethnography. So it's, it's more of interviewing, writing, and even letting them to write. So for example, you heard that person saying the word and you hear it perfectly, but when they write it, it's written differently. So that's very critical when you go to research. Okay? No wonder why some ethno-linguistic groups have a different spelling when they are written in some literary books. Let's take another minute to unpack that. Edgy talks about a lot, and it's like layers of meanings to unravel like an onion. So with creating and writing a dictionary that's focused specifically on culinary terms, and the eating and the drinking culture that surrounds it, you can't just say something like sinigang is a sour stew or a sour soup. First of all, there are many kinds of sinigang, with preferred ingredients for specific groups of people, say the Tagalogs versus the Visayans. It differs because those groups of people have grown up with a different taste, the nakagisnan, like I was talking about earlier, and even something as simple as how a person perceives sourness. For some people, it isn't sinigang unless it's a certain brand of the powdered mix, or if it's made with fruit from a backyard tree. And even if we did go with the backyard tree route, sinigang would taste different based on the type of fruit, how ripe it is, what time of the year it is, how much of it you use, whether you toss in some leaves from the tree. All of this stuff affects the taste and the complexity of a pot of sinigang. And so even with qualitative descriptions that focus on the taste, the texture, the look, and the smell of certain foods, I would find it challenging to describe something that people with different points of reference for taste specifically, something that they would understand. 
I've been in Mindanao, Maguindanao. Uh, they have this rice dish that's called pastil. Uh, a different spelling, you know. May til na T-I-E, T-I-E. In Maranao also, when you write the, the word, there are some letters that is not pronounced. So there are also some that, that is not there but pronounced. You have to be careful. You have to be careful. It's very critical. Because you might um, misrepresenting their their ano their food or their their culture. For me, stories like these have kind of become little life lessons, if you will, wrapped up in a banana leaf and steamed over coconut husks. Mm. <laughs> but for real though, it's like a little takeaway to understand that one of the greatest forms of respect that I think I can show to someone making an effort to preserve their own food culture. The best thing I can do is to know and to talk about the truths that they live with. And if I want to see that food culture alive and well, I kind of have to see the truths of the people who grow and make that food, because without them, it just doesn't exist. One of the critical things is that you have to be prudent in uh, writing and in and putting it into text because uh, there are there are some words that when you hear it it's not it's not spilled the way it is heard. And then there are the homonyms, culinary homonyms where things just aren't what they seem. There are also some words that sounds the same, spelled the same, but means different thing to another region. Take for example, patis. Patis in Tagalog is the briny sauce of fish, right? When you ask patis there in Visayas, they will give you soy sauce. But if you ask them toyo, they will give you the patis. And there are also some dishes, that is the, there are some dishes, actually I listed that, um, I, but I cannot uh, recall what many of them. They uh, have the same name, but of different description, like adubado, the adubado of uh, Tagalog, and this is from the, from the Western culture. It is uh, marinated, something like that. But in Bicol, it's aginataan. No? It's not adubo. It's aginataan uh, seafoods. So there are many, many, many uh, confusion that uh, we have to we have to identify. And most particularly in fruits, no? There are many, many fruits, have so many names. But so many names of only few fruits. Uh, like, for example, the aratilis. What aratilis is, yung, you know, the, the manzanitas. Uh, I don't know what. In, 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 in Paranaque, it's aratilis. It's a small fruit. Parang tiny apples. Kaya ang tawag doon sa Visayas manzanitas. But aratilis somewhere there in, in Bicol and in Ilocos. Aratilis is a cherry. Cherry, like it's bigger. It's not the artilist that you know. <laughs> so you have to be careful. And more thing also is uh, fishes, the seafoods. Different kind of fish with one name. And there's also one fish with different names. So they were overlapping. So there's a confusion there. And that's only one, that's only one thing that I'm going to sort out. Even in spices, the sibuyas, when you go to the Muslim areas, uh, it's it's called by different names now. Uh, what what you know know as um, 
as bawang here is no longer bawang there. So we are of different languages. I don't call them dialects because some 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 don't like it. Uh, I treated them all as languages, but for me they are synonymous. You have to identify also the way they they use words, okay? Because uh, there are some words that's dedicated to, um, say for example, their culture, okay? Ritual words, yeah, that's exactly. And being get, they name their foods by way of uh, expressing their belief, no? Uh, say for example, the way they, they plant and harvest and serve their rice, okay? It's a very good reminder for us that the, the food that you find in different places of the Philippines, it's really kind of parang fancy word siya, pero yung terroir. I remember um, reading a section about rice and all the different names that you have for the different stages that the rice grain um, is. And it's very interesting to me because for myself growing up, and every Filipino person, um, I'm sure is very, very familiar with rice. Like it's such a, an everyday part of your life. But many of us don't really realize that um, there's such a, a deep history and a very deep culture. And I really respect um, how you were saying that when you uh, travel to these different places and meet the different people from those communities, it's really about showing uh, respect for how they have been eating these foods for a very long time, for many generations. I guess the takeaway that I got from that is really that it's very important for us not to, to learn about a little bit about the history of the people because it helps us appreciate the food that they have when you say that in certain places, um, because salt was either very expensive to get, most people who live in a certain region, parang they grow up with parang less less intense yung flavors nila because that's just how their environment, that's their environment and that's where they get their food and that parang... Yeah. Abundance and scarcity of supplies. <laughs> yeah. Only if you realize this, that what is uh, missing in one place is substituted by another in another place. Say, for example, lugao. You get used to lugao sweetened with sugar, right? Yeah. To make it um, tasty, you add sugar. But you know, in some places, they use salt instead of sugar. Like in my place, in the mountain part, in the rural areas, because sugar is not abundance there, to make the, the lugao palatable, tasty, they put salt in it instead of sugar. So they can they can enjoy and have a tasty lugao. So it's a way of substituting even the adobo. What is um, not available in that region is substituted in other region. You know there is no much uh, spices in Batanes the Ebatans. When they cook their adobo, they simply cook it uh, the pork with the the fats and salt. Uh, la the lonies, yeah, that's, they call it lonies. Uh, and maybe some they add some vinegar. That's naturally it's cooked by its own fats because of the absence of uh, the needed ingredients. They have to do it. 
And somewhere in, let's see, here in, in CR, Southern Tagalog, where there's so many, many, many available supplies of ingredients. So you can, you can see different variations and varieties of adobo uh, that would suit your taste. Merong dilaw, may pula, may maasi, may maalat, may matamis. So you have to, to find your preference because the abundance is limitless. Okay? Unlimited pala. The, the special thing about taking some time to learn from other people and to read books and to travel, you're saying that there's really a lot to be proud of in our culture. And I think that that's kind of a good way to end the, the interview also is to just help everybody who is uh, listening to this, try to, I guess, challenge them to think of how how they can be proud of that culture. Yeah, there's an irony here that is happening in the Philippine food culture. Just recently in these past two decades, you know, the locals are not interested about their local practices and cultures, but the diasporas and the foreigners are getting interested. So it's something like um, two forces, no? One is uh, denying and the one is trying to discover, to accept it, to finding their identity. So I hope the diasporas and those who are now the expats and, and other uh, who are now migrating there. I know you will miss, you miss home and you kids uh, who have never been home, you are exciting to discover where you're from, your roots. This is one of the reasons uh, why I'm doing this because when you when you come here, what has been lost is still here. Uh, yeah, you will still find it, and we are helping you to to find your roots. And those who have been away for a while, when they come home, they can still find it when they come home. talk about so much else and someday I really got to get to doing some bonus episodes but for now I want to give my warmest sincerest thanks to Mr. Edri Polistico for accepting my request for this interview. I really did learn a lot from our talk and I'll continue to learn a lot of other stuff from the Philippine food cooking and dining dictionary I expect for many years to come. Our theme music is by David Seste, segment music is by Eric and McGill, Blue Dot Sessions, and Podington Bear. Visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com for past episodes. You can check out my other interviews over on the topics page, click on authors, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Exploring Filipino Kitchens. Maraming salamat, and until next time, thank you for listening.